Today is the first Sunday of November, which means we are entering into the time of year that we celebrate a lot. Uh, but just a couple, about two and a half weeks till Thanksgiving, a little mind-blowing to think about that, but we are almost there. So you will probably get together with family, friends, celebrate, and then you get into the month of December, and I'm pretty sure the entire month is a Christmas celebration, right? It's just kind of how it works. Then you got to celebrate the beginning of a new year right after that. So there's a lot, lot of things to, to celebrate that are coming up. And that's a good thing. It's good to celebrate. And we see in Scripture, God likes for us to celebrate. In fact, He commands us to. So many of the festivals and the things that, that were commanded in the Old Testament, even communion that we did a moment ago, is a time to remember, but it's also a time to celebrate God's goodness and His faithfulness in different ways, and they all represent different things that have happened. And today, we finally get to the portion in Revelation where we get to celebrate a little bit. If this is your first time with us today, you're jumping in toward the end of a study in Revelation, a little recap for everybody, because it's, it's, there's been some tough stuff to sled through here but uh, we've just, an oversimplification is this. The church has been pulled out, been raptured, is, is in heaven with God. The tribulation begins, and it comes in basically in three waves of, there are these, uh, uh, starts with the opening of seals, and there are seven in each of these waves. There are the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of God's judgment. And then last week we saw, is talking about Babylon, this great prostitute who has pulled the hearts of people away from God. Babylon is destroyed. We get into chapter 19 today, and there begins to be a lot of rejoicing, a lot of celebrating in heaven. And then we get to chapter 20, where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, and that's pretty amazing. So we get to celebrate a little bit today. So Revelation 19, read along with me. Starting in verse 1, it says, After this I heard... What seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this chapter starts out with this exclamation of hallelujah, and you see it four different times, just compacted there in just a few verses. That is a phrase you've probably heard before, right? That's a phrase that uh, has made its way into uh, Christian circles and worship and things like that, and so we probably have heard that phrase hallelujah. Did you know this is the only place in the Bible that shows up? Revelation 19, that's it. 
It's the only place in Scripture that we see this phrase that we've become so familiar with and accustomed to. And it comes from a Hebrew term that means, let us praise the Lord. So why are they praising the Lord? Well, they're praising the Lord because evil is being done away with. There's been judgment on Babylon, on those who've shed the blood of the saints. Um, They're getting what they deserve. It says over and over again that God is just in his judgments. And I've said this, I feel like I've repeated this nearly every week, but it bears repeating again. It's hard to see the judgment of God. It's hard to see the wrath of God. But let me just remind you that God is just. The judgment that we see is just. It is what sin deserves. In fact, it's not just what they deserve. It's what I deserve. It's what all of us deserve. Because my heart is sinful too. And because of that, what I really deserve is the judgment and wrath of God. Thankfully, that's not what we have to receive because Christ paid the penalty. Christ took on the wrath of God for us. We'll talk about that more toward the end of the message today. In fact, I just want to say this. If there's not been a time in your life where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have trusted in Christ and received the grace of God that he offers to you, you're going to have that opportunity today before you leave. And that's an important thing to settle because we don't want to find ourselves in a place where we are receiving God's wrath. Let's go back to why they are praising God. Again, verse 6. She talks about his justice, first five verses or so. Verse 6, there's this great multitude again. And again, they're crying out hallelujah because the Lord Almighty reigns. They're rejoicing because this marriage of the, this, the supper of the Lamb, the, the bride has made herself ready, it says, and they're preparing for this reunion, the, the groom and the bride coming together. The bride has made herself ready. This kind of made me think about, made my mind go back to the many weddings that I have done over the years, and there have been quite a few that I've done um, but I will say no wedding will uh, ever has compared. I'm sure to say ever will. There's one more that will. But up to this point, no wedding has compared. Maybe there will be. That sounded like I was prophesying there. I'm not. But there, <laughs> there was one wedding that was more meaningful to me than any other. And that happened on December 17, 2021. That's because it was my daughter. Uh, those of you who are putting two and two together, I was saying there may be another one. That, 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 that wasn't a statement about anything. I'm just saying I know that Autumn will listen to this and say, that's the most important one. No, it was up to that point. It was. And there will be potentially another equally important one. But here's what I learned in that. I've, I've been a part of a lot of weddings, but I'm not usually intricately involved in the bride's preparation for that ceremony, right? This one I was because I wasn't just, I was partly officiating the ceremony, but I was also daddy. And that was my most important role on that day. Uh, and so I got to see all this. And here's what I learned. For a bride... To prepare herself for her groom is an all-day affair, right? I mean, just on that day. But it is a big deal. And there's a lot that goes into it. It's very intricate. There's a lot of detail and things. And she does that because the bride wants to present herself in a certain way to her groom, right? She wants to look beautiful for her groom. Now, I think that this bride accomplished that goal. Here's a picture. I thought she looked beautiful. You can see her there looking great and her mama too. But... You know, there's just something about that, right? Like you want to be prepared. It says that this bride has this fine linen which represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, again, not that that that's how we earn the groom's favor. It's actually his righteousness that he gives to us. We'll talk about that later. But 
the groom, on the other hand, in my experience, does a whole lot less to prepare on that day, right? Most of the time, the guys are out there just trying to kill time while the girls are taking so long and they're, you know, playing basketball. For whatever reason, they had archery. I'd never seen this before. Uh, but Austin's out there with a bow and arrow shooting stuff. I mean, they, they, just anything they can do. And then about 30 minutes before she says, be here, dressed at this time, that's when he's like, oh, I guess I better put my tux on, right? May or may not brush his hair if he even owns a hairbrush. You know, that's just kind of how it works in our culture. Not as big a deal for the groom to get ready as it is for the bride. But you know, in the Bible, that's not true. The bride prepares herself, but the groom does too. In fact, part of that culture is that when they would, the first step toward marriage was betrothal, which was more than just an engagement. It was actually legal marriage at that point, but it was not consummated. They didn't come together. They didn't live together, but they were betrothed. When they became betrothed, the groom would then go to his father's home and prepare a place for his new bride to come and be with him. And typically that meant building a, a room onto the existing residence. Now, ladies, doesn't that sound like a romantic dream? When you get married, you get to move in with your in-laws. And sometimes that happens, and that can be okay. But that's the way it was. But the groom would go and prepare a place for her, and then he would come and take her to be with him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? John 14, where Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me. That, that's what he's talking about here. He has gone to prepare a place for us in heaven. And now there's this great celebration, this wedding feast where we are reunited with the groom and, and the place has all been prepared. Well, John hears this message and he's just overwhelmed. You know, I mean, at the thought of all the hallelujahs and the, the wedding feast and all that. And he falls down on his knees in front of and begins to worship in front of this angel. And the angel says, don't do it, dude. That's not exactly what he said, but that's basically what he meant. Don't worship me. You know, that we, we worship God. I'm, he said, I'm just a fellow servant like you are. And then there's a little phrase. I want to talk about this because this last sentence, tell me if you've ever heard this before. This last sentence says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Anybody ever heard that used before? That sometimes gets pulled out of context and used in a way that is not really what he's talking about here. Here's what that sometimes means. People will sometimes quote this to mean that if I share a testimony, that's like I'm prophesying that it'll happen for you. In fact, those of you who listen to worship, there's a worship song out there that basically that's exactly what it says. Testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. If he did it for me, he'll do it for you. Um, that's not what this verse is saying. You know, the way it's used is, let's say, you know, my testimony is God healed me of cancer and so I find someone else that's battling cancer and I share my testimony as a way of saying what God did for me he's going to do for you um, yes he can but that's not what it's saying and we got to be very very careful not to try to make scripture say something it doesn't in its context this is what he's saying he's saying don't fall down and worship me it's not about me because what it's all about is Jesus it's the testimony of Jesus that's the spirit of prophecy. Point everything toward him. That, that, that's what he's communicating there. And then let's continue on in verse 11 and following. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but he himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on his horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Um, Pretty serious stuff in these verses, right? It, it talks about, obviously, this is Jesus coming. He's riding on the white horse. He has this uh, written on his side, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's very obvious who we're talking about here. Uh, but he comes, and it describes him this way. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire. I mean, he, he means business. This is Jesus coming back to settle things and to make things right. This is warrior Jesus. This is not suffering servant Jesus that came with the first coming. Uh, but Jesus is coming to, to uh, eliminate the rest of any evil that remains. And it says that he's wearing a diadem, which is another word for a crown. This is a ruler's crown, not like the, the wreath that, that a victor of a, you know, a competition would wear. This is the crown of a ruler. And Jesus rules is the point here. You know, saying that reminds me of a story. When Don't get any ideas here, students. But when I was in the youth group that I was in growing up, uh, when I got involved there, we, I grew up in Arlington, and it's close to University of Texas, UTA, uh, in Arlington. And they had a football stadium back then. They don't have any more. And so it was like two miles, if even that, uh, two minutes, uh, from the church that I attended. And... All of us decided one time we would just kind of walk into the stadium because they have gates. But when you're a skinny teenager, you just turn sideways and go between the little gap that's between the bars. You know, so we just walked right in. And y'all remember the seats? Those of you who have been around for a little while, that, like they had a different color. You could fold them down and write things by folding certain seats down and you know, certain colors and whatever. So we decided we were going to go into the stadium and write, Jesus rules. And the chair in the stadium. And so it's my only time I ever got in trouble with the law. The police showed up. And ran us out and said, y'all get out of here. We didn't really get in any trouble. Uh, but I was kind of a rule follower as a kid. But I was part of that rebellious group of Jesus-loving teenagers that were sneaking in the stadiums and trying to write things in there. So, but Jesus really does rule, literally. I mean, he will come with this diadem. He will come, I mean, just the, the picture of all this. And you get to the end of the chapter, and it says that the beast, that's the Antichrist, remember? The beast and his armies, all these are, are thrown into the lake of fire. That there is final justice here that comes as a result, and they're celebrating all of this. But there is one last-ditch effort where the Antichrist and the false prophet gather with the kings of the earth to war against God, and as you might imagine, it doesn't go so well. Now let's keep reading. Chapter 20. It says, Then I saw an angel... Coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, we've seen this bottomless pit before, right? You remember this? You may recall last time we talked about this, I mentioned the Greek word there is abusos, which is where we get the term abyss. So if you ever hear the abyss or the bottomless pit, it just comes from that, that Greek term. Um, in chapter 9, verse 1, we see that Satan is given the key to the abyss. And that's where he opens it and there are these demonic creatures as part of uh, the wrath of God. The demonic creatures come out and they look like locusts and they sting like scorpions and it's just a terrifying kind of a thing to think about. But now in this dramatic change of events, Satan no longer has the key to the abyss. Now that key is given to an angel. And wouldn't you like to see, I would like to see what this angel looked like. But here's an angel coming with a key and with a chain. And Satan sees him coming. And he has to think to himself, this is not good. I mean, this has got to be like being a pitcher in the World Series and facing Corey Seager with a game on the line. I'm just saying, just a little shout out to my World Series champion, Texas Rangers there. Yeah, I had to work that in a little bit. Not good, right? You see this coming and it's panic time because he knows what's about to happen. And this angel comes, wraps him in chains, opens the abyss, throws him in for a thousand years. Now, as we'll see in a moment, he's actually let out temporarily at the end of the thousand years but let's talk about what's going on in the meantime what is this thousand years and how do we understand it and basically there are three primary uh, what we would call millennial views the word millennium of course just means a thousand years so views of this millennium the first one is what we might call amillennialism anytime you see a in front of something or ah it means it takes it away. It doesn't exist. Like if you see the word atheist, really technically should probably be atheist. But a theist believes in God exists and atheist believes God doesn't exist. And so amillennialism believes there's really no such thing as a literal millennial period. That the church, uh, once Jesus was resurrected through the church, God began to reign. And that is uh, it's just figurative. That's what amillennialism believes. The second major view is called post millennialism, which posts because they believe Jesus will come back at the end of, or post-millennium, at the end of the millennial reign, Christ will return. This is a very optimistic view that believes that it will just get better and better and better, so we'll enter into this millennial period before the return of Christ where the whole world basically is Christianized, and then at some point Jesus comes back. The third view, which is the one that we hold to, and I believe is the most biblically accurate is called premillennialism, and that takes a literal interpretation of Revelation 20. We believe that there will be a time where Jesus will come and literally reign on the earth. Right? That, that Jesus uh, is not waiting until after the millennial reign. He comes before, pre-millennium, and then reigns during that thousand years. Um, the view of this one is that things will continue to get worse until the millennial reign. And I think not only does that line up best with Scripture, but that's what we see. 
uh, is that things are continuing to deteriorate and will continue to do so until Christ comes. But having said that, let me offer a caution here. Uh, be very careful not to let your theology of the millennium be what you determine, how you determine whether someone is a biblical Christian or not. One of the most helpful exercises I went through as a seminary student was a theology professor that gave us a book and, and had us report on it and, and had articles written by theologians that held to each of these different millennial views, and they all based them on Scripture. And so where I may not agree with everything, I can at least understand and respect where someone else is coming from. It doesn't necessarily mean someone is a liberal heretic if they don't agree with your view of the millennium. But I do believe that we should understand this and interpret it literally. Uh, in verse 4 it says, There will be thrones and seated on them those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So who's that? We know, as you read on a little bit, some of them are the martyrs, people that you know, were, were killed for Jesus. But we don't know who the others are. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says this. To me, it gives us maybe at least a good guess. It says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we endure with him, we will reign with him. I, I think what he's talking about here, these are believers that are... Uh, brought back to reign with Christ, that are giving these given thrones to reign with Jesus. Now, Jesus is the one who reigns. He really doesn't need our help. I mean, to me, this is kind of like, a, a, as a parent, parents, you ever had this, where you have a three-year-old that wants to help you clean, you know? And, and maybe you're pushing a vacuum or wipe something, and they want to help, and so they've got their little toy thing, and when you get finished, what do you say? You say, look at what we did. You know, didn't we do a good job? Thank you for your help. Were there really any help? No, not really. I, Jesus doesn't need our help. But he's gracious enough to say, I'm going to allow you to reign with me. And then it says that, uh, that, that after this thousand year reign, let's keep reading the defeat of Satan. Verse 7 says, when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. At the end of this thousand-year period, Satan will be released. And it says that he will go to the four corners of the earth. And then it mentions something that may sound a little weird here. Gog and Magog. What in the world is that all about? Ezekiel 38 and 39 are a prophecy about Gog and Magog. Uh, Gog was the land where Magog lived. And Magog was a grandson of Noah. He settled uh, north of Israel and became known as a fierce warrior. So this is a land of, of warriors. These are people who are going to oppose God. Now again, we might ask the question, now wait a minute, All evil has been eradicated, right? Before Jesus comes back, Jesus is reigning, Satan is bound. So where in the world do these people come from that are rebelling against God and wanting to come? And it says they were like the sand of, of, of the seashore. They're coming, fighting with Satan against God. And the answer is this, that yes, it was all Christians to begin with, but these Christians are going to have children. And even though Satan has been bound, the sinful nature has not yet been destroyed. So 
So these children are being born in their generation after generation after generation after generation that are born with this sinful nature. And think about this, a thousand years, that's four times as long as America has been in existence. That's a long time. That's a lot of opportunity for people to follow the sinful nature and to become rebellious toward God. And Satan is released, gathers all of those who want to rebel against God, and then they decide that they're going to come fight against God. This is the same song, second verse, right? Satan's already done this once in heaven. It didn't work out there. So he tries it now on earth with the kings of the earth. It's not going to work again. But he tries. The Bible says that God sends fire from heaven. I mean, this battle was over before it ever started. And he consumes them entirely. And then Satan is taken and thrown into this lake of fire. The lake of fire is, is the final, what, what we think about is of hell. That's the lake of fire. This final place of torment. That's where he goes. But it's not just him. Let's keep reading. And this, is, this ought to get our attention here and cause us to ask some important questions. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence... Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This great white throne judgment that is described here is the judgment for unbelievers. Now those that do know Christ will also face judgment, but it will be different. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, let's be real clear about this. This is a rewards-based judgment, not a salvation judgment. This isn't determining whether you go to heaven or hell. This is determining what rewards will look like in heaven. And so, yes, our deeds do impact our rewards. Our, our deeds motivated by faith impact our rewards in heaven. But it's not saying that God is judging to say, are you good enough to be accepted in the heaven or not? If we don't have a relationship with Christ, the judgment that we will face is what's described here in chapter 20. It's this great white throne. These will stand before God, and it says that they will be judged based on their own deeds and their own actions. And as a result of that, it says that those whose names are not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. Guys, the Bible is extremely clear that the only way for us to be accepted by God, the only way for us to avoid this lake of fire and to spend eternity in heaven with God is for our name to be written in the book of life. And that's a faith thing. That's not our actions. It's not being good enough. It's only when we are given this incredible gift of grace that God offers us through Christ. I love the way 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus became sin for us. He paid the penalty that we owe because of our sinfulness so that we, in turn, could take on his righteousness. That's amazing. That's grace. That's God saying to us, I'm giving you an opportunity to let your sins be paid for because that's why Jesus came. And those who trust in Christ will never have to worry about this great white throne judgment. We don't have to worry about, are we going to go to heaven or hell? That's been settled. So let me just summarize it and close with this. When you stand before God someday, and all of us will, you don't want to be judged based on the merits of your works. You want to be judged based on the merits of Jesus' works, what he has done. Because he's the only one who is righteous. He is the only one who meets God's standard. And I know the things that, that we're reading about here in Revelation, that's a long time out in the future. I mean, we haven't even started the millennium yet. We're talking about the end of the thousand years. I get that. But the principle's still the same. And that is that someday, every single person in this room, every person watching online right now, everybody will stand before God. And the only way for us to know that we will be with him forever is for our name to be in the book of life. That's it. That comes by faith. In a minute, I'm going to pray. I'm going to close out the message, and, and then I'm going to come back in a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity to trust in Christ, to pray a prayer where you can say, God, I'm giving my heart to you if you've never done that before, because that is the only way for us to know that our eternity is secure. But first, let's just pray together. Lord, I pray right now that you will prepare our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those that, that are about to take the most important step of their life, to put their trust in you, that you would give them courage, that you would give them clarity. Lord, I pray for those that do know you. But Lord, there's just something in our lives that, that, that we need to take a step of faith as well. Would you help us? Lord, to do that. Help us to have the courage through the empowering of your spirit because we depend on you even now, Lord. Do your work to draw hearts to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to give you an opportunity today to trust in Christ if you've not done that before. It's really important to me that you know this about me. I'm not big on scare tactics of any kind. Whatever it is, if it's trying to convince somebody of this and you try to scare them, that's, that's not the goal. So to talk about, I mean, the reality that we may have to face a lake of fire, that's not intended as a scare tactic. That's just intended to say, we need to know the truth. And I care enough about each of you to tell you the truth. The truth is apart from Christ. That's what our eternity looks like. That's not good. But in Christ... We can be forgiven, and we can have life, and we can spend eternity with God in heaven. I'll be honest with you. If I didn't know for sure that that was my situation, I'd want to settle that before I walked out of this room today. And I suspect there are some that that's exactly where you are, some that are watching at home right now online. They're like, I need to settle this today. And I want to give you that chance right now. In fact, let's just bow our heads in the spirit of prayer. Those of you that have a relationship with Christ already, you can be praying for those that, that they're about to take the step. But if you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, 
and you're ready to put your trust in him, just pray something like this. And I'll, I'll pray little phrases. You can repeat it back to God. Just your own prayer of faith. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. Right now, I turn to you in faith. I confess that I believe that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. And I surrender my heart to you today. Thank you for receiving me into your family. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen.